0: This is What Did You Expect? This is Chapter 4, called Day by Day.
1: I'll never forget
0: the moment. It was 1974, and Luella and I were on our first mezzanine level of the Forest Theater in Philadelphia. It was a packed house at the end of the play, Godspell. It was no longer a theater audience. It was a celebration, a party. The reprise was being sung and played over and over. The air was filled with magic. The scene was electric. The doors were open, but no one was interested in leaving. The story of the gospel had, for a moment, transported us to another place. People grabbed the hands of people they didn't know and would probably never see again. We danced and hugged and laughed. We were all taken beyond our fears and our self-interest. We were celebrating a victory that many of us didn't re- really understand. We had seen wisdom come to earth and transform fools into heroes. In that once-in-a-lifetime moment, we all sang the same song. We sang it over and over. No one in the room wanted to stalk the song to stop. The musicians smiled as they cranked it up even more. They knew they may not ever experience that again. It was as though they had a sense that they hadn't made this happen either. Perhaps for the first time, they understood that the production they had been part of for many months was all what was month was what the production they had been part of for many months was all about. We thought we had the best seats in the house. We could look down and see exuberance like we hadn't seen before and probably wouldn't see again until eternity. As Luella and I glanced at one another, we knew we didn't need to say what we were thinking. We knew that. Uh, the other what the other knew then suddenly my mind became freshly aware of the words we were singing words that all humanity was meant to sing tears began to fill my eyes this is what we were made for this is what the gospel is all about and this is what grace alone is able to do i thought as i mouthed the words with the crowd which had become my for the moment family Day by day, day by day, O oh, dear Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. I don't think it would be possible to have a more appropriate mission statement for a marriage. I am deeply convicted, convinced from Scripture and my own experience and the stories of others that you fix a marriage vertically before you ever fix it horizontally, before you can really gain significant ground in your relationship with your spouse, ground where real lasting change takes place you have to be willing to accept and deal with what god says about you your spouse your world and god himself his purpose and his grace these things aren't just the focus of super spiritual people who want marriage plus a whole lot of spirituality no dealing with these things in a way that forms a day-by-day lifestyle is the foundation of marriage that is what god designed it to be and does what god intended it to do You cannot avoid dealing with these things any more than you can avoid removing trees from the wooded lot where your new home is going to be located. What we so joyously sang that night was much more than a song, although most of the crowd didn't know it. It is rather a radical paradigm for a way of living that fills every day with honesty and hope. The things that the lyrics call you to are not one-time decisions. They are meant to be daily commitments that become regular ways of living. When the commitments and actions that follow are applied to marriage, something very simple but quite revolutionary happens. And once it does, you will never want to go back again. Brick by brick, I performed the marriage, so I got the call. It is almost always made by the wife, and she is calling because she has actually been forced to face what somewhere in the recesses of her mind she knew to be true. She and her husband are sinners. The call is usually made a few days or weeks after the honeymoon. On the honeymoon, the self-orientation of sin is overshadowed by exotic cuisine and gorgeous sights. But when the couple returns to real, everyday life, minus these distractions, they are forced to face who they really are and what their marriage is actually about. I have always thought of this moment of real reality recognition as a very positive thing, although the caller rarely does. Usually the wife is in a panic. She thinks she has made a mistake. She thinks their love is over, and she imagines she is going to live a life of loveless torment. But at this moment, I think she is about to experience the good stuff that only honest marriage can experience. She is about to be taken beyond herself. And in being taken beyond herself, she will abandon her dream. And in abandoning her dream, she will pick up a better dream. And in picking up a better dream, she will commit herself to a set of daily habits that will not only heal her marriage but make it something better than she ever conceived of it. The problem is that none of this is what she expected. Sarah called me at 6.30 a.m. the day after the ceremony. I picked up the phone to these two words, It's over. I knew it wasn't over. In fact, I was happy that she was making a call so soon. I thought Sarah and Ben were the smart kids in the class. They had gotten to the end of themselves quickly and were doing something very wise, reaching out for help. I was delighted to help, and I knew that the journey we were about to take together would change them in their marriage. Here is what I have told couples again and again. It is what I have endeavored to live in my own marriage as well. The reconciliation of a marriage must be a lifestyle, not just the response you have when things go bad, Consider why this must be the case. If you are a sinner, married to a sinner, and you are, then it is very dangerous and potentially destructive to allow yourself to coast as a couple. You simply will not live a day together where no act of thoughtlessness, self-interest, anger, arrogance, self-righteousness, bitterness, or disloyalty will rear its ugly head. Often it will be nine and low level, but it will still be there. Now, I want you to introduce you to a theme that will come up again and again in this book. If you're going to have a marriage that lives in unity, understanding and love, you must have a little moment approach to your marriage. All this does is recognize the nature of life God has designed for us. In his wisdom, God has crafted a life for us that does not careen from huge consequential moment to huge consequential moment. In fact... If you examine your life, you will see that you have actually had few of these moments. You can probably name only two or three life-changing situations you have lived through. We are all the same. The character and quality of our life is forged in little moments. Every day we lay little bricks on the foundation of what our life will be. The bricks of words said, the bricks of actions taken, the bricks of little decision, the bricks of little thoughts, the bricks of small moment desires all work together to form the functional edifice that is your marriage. So you have to view yourself as as a marital mason, you are daily on the job, adding another layer of bricks that will determine the shape of your marriage for days, weeks, and years. Perhaps this is precisely the problem. It is the problem of perception. We just don't tend to live life this way. We tend to fall into quasi-thoughtless routines and instinctive ways of doing things that are less self-conscious than they need to be. And we tend to back away from the significance of these little moments because they are little moments. You see, the opposite is true. Little moments are significant because they are little moments. These are the moments that make up our lives. These are the moments that set up our future. These are the moments that shape our relationships. We must have a day-by-day approach to everything in our lives. If we do, we will choose our bricks carefully and place them strategically. Things don't go bad in a marriage in an instant. The character of marriage is not formed in one grand moment. Things in a marriage go <clears throat> bad progressively. Things become sweet and beautiful progressively. The development of deepening of love in a marriage happens by things that are done daily. This is also true with the sad deterioration of a marriage. The problem is that we simply don't pay attention. And because of this, we allow ourselves to think, desire, say, and do things that we (laughs) shouldn't. Let me play out this life of little moment inattention for you. You squeeze squeeze and crinkle the toothpaste tube even though you know it bothers your spouse. You complain about the dirty dishes instead of putting them in the dishwasher. You fight for your own way in the little things rather than seeing them as opportunity to serve. You allow yourself to go to bed irritated after a little disagreement. Day after day, you leave for work without a moment of tenderness between you. You fight for your view of beauty rather than making your home a visual expression of the taste of both of you. You allow yourself to do little rude things that you would never have done in courtship. You quit asking forgiveness in little moments of wrong. You complain about how the other does little things when it really doesn't make any difference. You make little decisions without consultation. You quit investing in the friendship of intimacy in your marriage. You fight for your own way rather than for the unity in little moments of disagreement. You complain about others' foibles and weaknesses. You fail to seize those opportunities to encourage. You quit searching for the little avenues for expressing love. You begin to keep a record of little wrongs. You allow yourself to be irritated by what you once appreciated. You quit making sure that every day is punctuated with tenderness before sleep takes you away. You quit regularly expressing appreciation and respect. You allow your physical eyes and the eyes of your heart to wander. You swallow little hurts that you would have once discussed. You begin to turn little requests into regular demands. You quit taking care of yourself. You become willing to live with more silence and distance than you would have when you were approaching marriage. You quit working in those little moments to make your marriage better, and you begin to succumb to what is. Why do we quit paying attention? Because it is hard work to care. It is hard work to discipline ourselves to be careful. And it is hard work to always be thinking of the other person. Now, be prepared to have your feelings hurt. You and I tend to want the other to work hard because that will make our lives easier. But we don't really want to have to sign in for the hard work ourselves. Oh, I'm don't oh i uh, but we don't really want to have to sign in for the hard work ourselves, oh I'm not done. I think there is an epidemic of marital laziness among us. We want to be able to coast and have things not only stay the same but get better. And I am absolutely persuaded that laziness is rooted in self-centeredness of sin. We have already examined the antisocial danger of this thing inside of us that the Bible calls sin. We have already considered that it turns us in our own into our own ourselves, but it does something else. It reduces us to marital passivity. We want the good things to come to us without the hard work of laying the daily bricks that will result in the good things. And we are often more focused on what the other is failing to do and more focused on wait, want, waiting for him to get his act together than we are on our own commitment to doing whatever is daily necessary to make our marriages what God intended them to be. You can have a good marriage, but you must understand that a good marriage is not a mysterious gift. No, it is rather a set of commitments that forges itself into a moment-by-moment lifestyle. Reconciliation is a lifestyle. What does this mean? This is very interesting. There is a very interesting passage in 2 Corinthians that provides a model for what this day-to-day lifestyle looks like. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he has a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against him. He was committed to us the message of reconciliation.
1: We are therefore
0: Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. This passage is a call to a particular way of thinking about and living in our relationship to God. What it calls us to in our relationship with God is a wonderful model for our relationship with one another in marriage. This is always true. The first great commandment always defines the second great commandment. Paul understands that we have to be reconciled to God by an act of his grace. We knew that there is no way... He knew that there's no way for us to earn God's love or deserve his favor. But having said that, he was also quick to remind us that the reconciliation to God is both an event and a process. Notice the verse in. Notice the words of verse 20. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Who is the you that Paul is addressing? The you is not in the original, though it is surely implied. That you in the, is the Corinthian church. Now, maybe you're thinking, Paul, if these people are believers... Haven't they already been re- reconciled to God? The answer is yes and no. Yes, they have been reconciled to God in the advent sent of God's acceptance of them in Christ. But there is another reconciliation that is still going on. To the degree that we continue to live our, li- our live for ourselves, to the degree we still need to be reconciled to God. <laughs> Since in some way we live for ourselves every day, we need to be reconciled to, daily to God in confession and repentance. What a perfect model this is for our marriages. Yes, you've already made that one time decision to live a, in love with one another, but you don't always live as if you have. To the degree that you you daily, in some way, continue to live for yourself to the degree that you daily need to be reconciled to God and to one another. You don't just coast along, hoping somehow, some way to avoid the bad stuff. No, you live with reconciliation intentionality. You live with humble hearts and eyes wide open. You are ready to listen and willing to hear. You examine and consider. You take on habits of reconciliation and become a daily lifestyle in your marriage. And you make those habits a regular part of your daily routine. Sadly, I think there are a few couples who actually live this way. How many couples do you know who say that their relationship is the best it has ever been and what is that it is getting better all the time? <laughs> How many couples say that they are now experiencing a deeper level of unity, understanding, and love that they have never known? How many couples say that their spouse is their deepest, closest, and most precious friend? These things are <clears throat> these these things are not like a romantic cloud that you happen to wander into. No, they are the rich relational blessing of living the way God, who created marriage, intended us to live. They are not re- relational luxuries for the romantically inclined. clearly written in the bible what they what they say <clears throat> that they say they hold dear When he said it, I thought it was a huge exaggeration by a frustrated pastor who just happened to be my brother. But I have come to see the accuracy and insight in what he said. There is no collection of wisdom principles more stunningly insightful than what can be found in the pages of Scripture. Of course, this would be true since the book was written by the hands of men who were guided to write what they wrote by the one who created everything about which they wrote. It is only the creator who could have such a powerfully insightful and practically transformational origin to destiny perspective as the one found in the Bible. <laughs> only he is able to have the perspective not limited by time and space and the bias of sin. Only he is able to speak from the vantage point of creation intent, creation intention. Who could possibly know more about the world he created and the people he designed? God's word really does open up as to us the mysteries of the universe. It really does make us wiser than we could possibly ever be without it. Yet having said all this, it is important to reflect on how sad it is that we don't take more advantage of the wisdom God has given us. It is sad that we don't think his thoughts after him. It is sad that we don't require ourselves to look at life always through the lens of his wisdom. It is sad that we swindle ourselves into thinking that we are wiser than we are. It is sad that we aren't more irritated by our foolishness and more motivated to seek his wisdom. Why have I reminded you of all of this? Because the marriage reconciliation lifestyle, which is the focus of this book, is rooted in three essential wisdom perspectives that together must become the mentality of a healthy marriage. Let me lay these out for you. One, you must live in your marriage with a harvest mentality. Paul captures this mentality with these very familiar words. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. And for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you are ever going to live with daily awareness of the little moment needs that propel you to live with habits of reconciliation, you have to carry this mentality around with you. You have to buy into the principle of consequences. Here it is. There is an organic relationship between the seeds you plant and the fruit you harvest. In the physical world, you will never plant peach pits and get apples. If you plant peach pits and get apples, run fast and run long because something has happened to the universe. In the same way, there will be organic consistency between the seeds of words and actions that you plant in your marriage, and, and, and the harvest of the words and actions that you plant in your marriage, and the harvest of a certain quality of relationship that you experience as you live with one another. Every day you harvest relational plants, and you have come from the seeds of words and actions that you previously planted. And every day you plant seeds of words and actions that you will one day harvest. Most of the seeds you plant will be small, but 1,000 small seeds that grow up into trees will result in an environment-changing form. Number two, you must live in your marriage with an investment mentality. We are all treasure hunters. We all live to gain, maintain, keep, and enjoy things that are valuable to us. Our behavior in any given situation of our life is our attempt to get what is valuable to us out of the situation. There are things in our life that you have assigned assigned importance to, and once you have, you are no longer willing to live without them. These principles are laid out in Matthew 6:19 through 33 Everyone does it. We live to possess and experience the things upon which we have set our hearts. We are always living for some kind of treasure. Every treasure you set your heart on and actively seek will give you some kind of return. An argumentative at moment is an investment in the treasure of being right, and from it you will get some kind of relational return. If you aggressively argue your spouse in a corner, it is not likely that the return on that investment will be her appreciation for you and a desire to have one of your, those conversations again. If you invest in the treasure of willing service, you will experience the return of appreciation, respect, and greater friendship and intimacy in your marriage. If it is more valuable to have your house immaculate clean than it is for your partner to be comfortable, then you will live with the return of that in the quality of your relationship. Investment is inescapable. You do it every day, and you are seldom able to return to escape the return of the investments you have made. Ask yourself, what are the things that are valuable to me right now? The things that I work to experience every day and am willing to live without. Uh, and how is the return on those investments shaping my marriage? Number three, you must live in a marriage with a grace mentality. When I got married, I didn't understand grace. I had a principalistic view of scripture that caused me to bring a law economy into my marriage. The central focus of the Bible is not a set of practical life principles. No, the central theme of the Bible is a person. Needed was a knowledge and understanding of a certain set of God revealed principles for living, Jesus would not have needed to come. I think there are many Christians living in Christless marriages. Without knowing what they have done, they have constructed a law based rather than a grace based marriage. Because of this, they are asking the law to do what only grace can accomplish. <laughs> And the problem with this is that we are not just people in need of wisdom. We are people in need of rescue. And the thing we need rest to be rescued from is us. Our fundamental problem is not ignorance of what is right. Our problem is selfishness of heart that causes us to care more about what we want about what is right, the laws, principles, and perspectives of Scripture provide the best standard ever for our marriages to quest for. They can reveal our wrongs and failures, but they have no capacity whatsoever to deliver us from them. For what we need. For that, we need the daily grace that only Jesus gives us. So we must not simply hold one another to a high relational standard of God's word, but we must also daily offer the same grace that we have been given to one another so that we may be tools of grace in the lives of one another. Our confidence is not in the ability we have to keep God's law, but rather in the life-giving and heart-transforming grace of the one who has drawn us to himself and has the power to draw us to one another. When we live with this confidence, we look at the difficulties of marriage, not so much as hassles to be endured, but as opportunities to enter into even deeper experiences of the rescuing, transforming, forgiving, empowering grace of the one who died for us and is always with us. Three mentalities, each of us, and as each as an essential building block of reconciliation lifestyle. Each require the honesty of personal humility, and each encouraging us to be reconciled to one another and to God again and again and again. Okay, so that's not the end of chapter four, but I have to go, so I'll finish the next part with something else. Um, have a great day, my family.